welcome. As we enter into this time of stillness and silence, I invite you to just begin by placing your focus on your heart space, if you're willing to do so. And in your mind's eye, can you just imagine it opening up and getting larger and the contents just spilling over, the contents of love and joy and wisdom and compassion. Can you just imagine them opening up and spilling out into the world to everyone around you, people you know and people you don't know? Can you just for a moment be willing to let that very sacred and secret part of you out into the world where it can be recognized and acknowledged and seen and loved and received. And know that by opening our hearts, we never empty them out because our source of life is infinite and eternal and it is forever flowing through us and filling us up. We can never give so much away that there's not enough left for us. Impossible. For what I know is that there is one source of life. It is God. It is the Tao. It is whatever name you want to give it. But there is something. There is something that runs in through and behind all of life. It's creative. And so are you. So as I step into this day and into this moment, into this service, I simply breathe into that space and allow, allow that something to inform me. That something that called me into being, to be just who I am, as I am, at this moment in time. That wherever I am, wherever my heart is, I am at home. This is a perfect moment. This is the moment of stillness and silence where I get to regroup, where I get to restore my mind and my body inside and out. So that when I go out into the world, I take the best me with me at work, at rest, at play, with everyone, in every circumstance. That's what I value. Just me as I am and you as you are. I am so grateful for all of those who recognize that in themselves, making this day possible supporting this service, this center, for hearing this message and taking even a tiny piece of it and putting it to use in their life. That's all we can do. Show up and do the best we can. Stay connected. Accept ourselves as we are and move forward. I'm thankful for you, for this day, for this moment. Let's claim it together by saying, and so it is. So how's summer going for you? 
Good, yeah. Can't complain about the weather, really, can we? We shouldn't, no. <laughs> it's lovely to have so much sun and warmth. And, uh, and Wednesday night, we had, if you were here, we had a wonderful experience. Um, I've been doing a five-week series on uh, teachings inspired by the Tao Te Ching. And uh, we were almost finished. And that huge thunderstorm was right over us. And we had the doors open and the wind just flew right through and blew things. And it's like, wow what energy we created. I have the last, the last one in the series of five this Wednesday, so I hope you'll consider joining us. It's a drop-in. You don't have to have attended any others to come, so, so hope to see you there. Today I'm talking about, about the company we keep at work. And I think that it's a question that we all get asked of, and we even ask ourselves, you know, what will I become? What will you become? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do I want to be when I grow up? I think I still ask that question. But if we flip it around, it often really means, what are you going to do when you grow up? What job, what career are you going to have? How are you going to make money? Isn't that the crux of it? How are you going to survive? How are you going to support your family and yourself? And, you know, can you be successful at that? Those questions come up all the time. There's a great quote. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition because they somehow already know what you truly want to become. We put so much attention and focus on our work. It becomes our identity. It becomes sometimes who we think we are when we meet somebody new. Sometimes we don't really feel like we know them until we know what they do and they know what we do. Sometimes we don't want to share that information, but we really do want to know, don't we? When I go out and leave the house, if I leave my money behind or my driver's license, my purse, whatever, sometimes it doesn't really matter, but I never I never leave home without this, my iPhone. I really enjoy my iPhone. I've had this one for a few years, and it just changed my life. I mean, in here, I have got so much of me, pictures of events and people uh, that I've, you know, have had fun with. My favorite music is in here, my books to read, my audio books to listen to, my calendar keeps me on track, my contact list, all the people I want to stay in touch with, all the texting that I do, the emails. I mean, it's all in here. This is just fabulous. It's, it's mine. It's me. But when I look at it, it also reminds me of something even more. And that is that someone, at some point in time, had a vision. A vision to make using a computer easy, simple, everyday, compact, portable, that everyone would have one, just like we all had TVs and telephones in our homes by the end of the 60s. Someone wanted to bring computers into our life that easy. That someone, of course, was Steve Jobs. And he gave us our first quote. He said, there's no reason not to follow your heart. And he was the kind of guy that got up every day and asked himself, if today were the last day of my life, would I do what I'm about to do? If today were the last day of my life, would I do what I'm about to do today? 
It's an interesting question. He says, if the answer is no too many days in a row, he says, I know, I've got to change something. And he was a guy who got up and did what he loved to do. And he was a guy that started, you know, Macintosh and Apple and, and all that whole wave. And he was the guy that got fired from his own company and got up the next day and said, but I love doing this. I have to do it. I can't stop doing it. Creating, inventing, visioning, and bringing something like this to us eventually. So what did he do? He went out and started two new companies, Pixar, which brought us new animated kinds of films like Toy Story and so many others since, and another computer company called Next, which eventually got bought out by Apple, and so he was back at Apple. And thank goodness, because then we got our iPods, our iTouches, our iPads, and of course, our iPhones. So there's a guy who really um, is a great example of, of bringing himself and knowing himself enough and what he really enjoys and loves and what makes him him and bringing it to the work that he does. So if we're talking about work, we need to define it. And so the definition I'm working with for work is accomplishing time-dependent or action-oriented tasks. That's what work is. So you can do work then uh, in your employment, you can do it when you're doing its errands, its chores, its volunteering, its situations and conditions that require your activity and focused energy. That's how I'm defining work. So when I think about a definition like that, I think like, I have been working an awfully long time. It started when I was very little. I was doing chores from a very, very young age. My parents had me doing inside chores and outside chores. My preferred activities, though, didn't include chores. I really didn't like doing very many of the chores I had to do. I felt my parents might be a little uh, obsessive-compulsive about the, clen the state of cleanliness in our house and in our yard. But nevertheless, they, I think, believed it was instilling character and maybe it was just their way of teaching us how to, you know, take care of our stuff and our things and, and how to, you know, be in the world. I also have to put in the, um, the waiver that my father was a military guy, so he was used to giving orders and inspecting to make sure the job was done properly, and that's kind of the way chores went in our house. I liked to read and listen to music and, of course, watch TV and be out with my friends and play and go to the playground and play games. I mean, this is pretty young, but, um, you know, I had lots of other things that I really enjoyed doing. A little balance of solitude and people time. Doing chores, as I was you know, thinking about this and reflecting on it, I realized I can even to this day stir up a lot of resentment in me about doing chores. And I also remember that there was something in me that gave way, something in me that accepted doing chores and feeling resentment because my allowance, money, depended on it. I wanted money. I liked money. Money meant I could go out and buy the things I wanted. Money eventually meant that I could travel and go to the places I wanted to go, and I didn't have to bring my family and my parents along with me. That was really important to me. 
So think about that. What did I learn at that very young age? That I could give my time and my energy and my resources to do something for somebody else and feel very resentful about it, all in the name of getting money. Money which for me symbolized independence and freedom. Is that really a healthy way of looking at things? I'm not so sure that it is. But that's what was planted in me at a very early age. Now my parents, I can't really you know, fault them too much, they had very noble ideas of their values and their personal ethics and their work ethic. And it stood me in good stead. And so when I was old enough, I had been watching my sister. She took babysitting jobs when she was old enough. She got to make more money. She got to get out of the house on weekends. She got to meet some really interesting people. So when I was old enough, I decided to follow in her footsteps because I thought, this is a great way to make more money. Then I can buy something I really, really want. What I learned about my babysitting experiences is that the ways my parents used and what I learned and came to believe about making kids do things they don't want to do didn't really work for me. It didn't feel right to me. I wanted to be friends with these kids. I wanted to play with them. I wanted to have fun. But sometimes you have to make kids do things they don't want to do, like go to bed at a certain time. And I didn't really like seeing myself sort of come out of the closet and, and not be as friendly to these children. And that's when I started to really learn that there was something in me that really didn't line up and feel very good with who I was being on the outside. And that's a really valuable lesson. And so I, um, of course, wanted to keep having, you know, experiences outside of the home. I wasn't quite ready to take on a real job yet, so my friend, one of my best friends at the time, said, oh, come on, let's apply, we'll be volunteers at the, at the hospital, and, and we'll get to go to the kids' ward and play with the kids and, you know, have some fun, and, and they give you a bus ticket to get there, and, and they get, give you a food voucher so you can go have lunch and a snack in the, in the cafeteria, it'd be great fun, and it was. You know, we didn't actually get onto the children's ward, they had enough volunteers there. They said, but you could work on the uh, adult ward, and so, you know, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that anyway. And it was great fun. My friend and I, we'd been friends for a number of years, and I knew that our lives were changing. We were eventually uh, going to have to go to separate, different schools and, and, and all that that would entail. So I really thought this would be a great way for us to spend a little more time together. And we had great fun. On our lunch breaks, we'd go and eat in the cafeteria, and then we'd go exploring the hospital. It was a rehab hospital, so there wasn't anything too intense going on on, on weekends. And we'd peek through the windows and, and see all those behind-the-scenes kind of things at the hospitals, and that just fascinated me to no end. Inevitably, my, my friend stopped volunteering, but I kept going. Because what I discovered when I was there was that I really enjoyed being with these older people. I really enjoyed helping serving their, serve their lunch trays and, and, and picking them up afterwards. And, and some of the, the people were quite a bit elderly and were having trouble eating. And I remember this one little, little granny in particular, and, and she liked her apple pie. And she would say to me, is there cheese for this apple pie? Because she would say, apple pie without cheese is like a kiss without a squeeze. <laughs> you know, your heart just kind of melts and you just want to do everything you can to find some cheese for her. 
I met a fellow, an older man, who had come to Canada from Austria or Switzerland, somewhere there. He was a photographer and a cross-country skier. He had the most magnificent photographs of the Rocky Mountains covered in snow and uh, all, all through. And uh, I mean, who, I had no idea. A 14-year-old girl had no idea that people did this sort of thing and, and, uh, and the outcome of it. It was just, it was incredible for me to meet somebody like that, so gifted and talented with such worldly experience. And then I met this other lady, and she had been a seamstress in the theater business, and so she sewed costumes and, and uh, things like that. And uh, I would sit and talk with her, it felt like for hours, week after week. Really enjoyed her company. And, uh, and then she started, she told me one day that she'd gone out to one of her meetings, and she was so happy. I said, oh, you know, what kind of meeting w would this be? And she says, oh, dear, you, you wouldn't know anything about this. It's, it's the Theosophist Society. I'm like, oh, well, what's that? And she says, well, we talk about things like science and philosophy and religion, all rolled up in one. Now, who knew where a conversation like that would take a good young Catholic girl? <laughs> I learned a lot about myself in that time. But of course, when I got old enough, volunteering was passe because now I could get a real job. I could make minimum wage or better. So I spent a few years flipping burgers and working as a cashier. Of course, making money that allowed me to travel more. I got to go and um, uh, I went to Spokane to Expo 74. Yes, that's how old I am. Just a group of teenagers on a bus with not much supervision. <laughs> it was a recipe for a disaster, but we actually had a whole lot of fun. But those were the kinds of experiences I loved to have and just to see a whole different part of the world and, and be with my friends and, and have a lot of fun. So I was really valuing money, independence, and freedom. And so working, flipping burgers and working as a cashier, I realized, well, you know, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And darn it all, I've got the marks. I could go to university. And they say if you go to university, you can get yourself a really good job and make lots of money and your success and your survival is guaranteed. So I embraced those, you know, accepted ideas in the outer world and even though I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do I did find a career there and I went into the physical therapy program I was interested in um, in healthcare. I think I was more interested in the care piece but um, I went into healthcare, and I've had a very long career in that and I realized that um, the ethics and the, and the experience and my values around work performance and whatnot really were carrying me far. And now I was in an institution that was just stuffing me with all sorts of knowledge that I didn't have before about how to go out and do this job in the world. What's interesting, and this was many years ago and I'm not sure how they do it now, but in my four-year program, it wasn't really until the third year that we started to have significant contact with our patients. So those first two years were filled with a lot of book learning. So I couldn't wait to see a patient. I couldn't wait to see them and examine and do my assessments and take all my measurements and figure out which histological tissues were involved in their injury and how we were going to get rid of their pain and fix this and get them strong and mobile again. But what about the person? What impact was this having on their life? 
How did this injury occur? What was going on in them? What is their goal? What would they really like to do? What functional outcomes are most important to them? It took a long time to get over all that book learning and that textbook stuff to really focus on the person behind the condition and the injury. And so what happens is that when we enter into the work world, for me, certainly, I came up with this whole history of believing in somebody else's values, somebody else's ethics, somebody else's knowledge. And the more and more I did that, the further away I was getting from what was in here that wanted to be expressed and known and felt. What was the gift in here that wanted to come out to the world? And the more I stuffed myself with somebody else's knowledge and facts and how-tos, the further away I got from in here. But that only takes us so far, you know, because at some point, what's in here really wants to get out. So we develop what Parker Palmer calls is this divided life. This divided life between the uh, outer self and the inner self. And there we have the sea stacks in Newfoundland. This is my cue to talk about the separation, the gap that it can occur between our inner and outer selves as we focus more on our outer life when we buy into somebody else's values and ethics and knowledge. And we haven't taken the time to examine it to see if, if we agree with it. Does it resonate with us? Can I really do this work that's being determined by someone else? Because the problem is that as we live a divided life, it might seem easier at first, but at some point, it's not going to. So the company that we keep at work, who do we take? Do we take the ego self? The ego that um, is kind of inflated and puffed up about itself? Well, I've got a university degree. I know lots of things. As much as you get inflated falsely, Deflation can happen very quickly. Jobs can disappear and dry up. Maybe what I'm bringing to it isn't what the job really needs. Do we take our ethical self to work? And you know, ethics, some, some people's ethics, they're very noble. I think my parents' ethics and values were very noble and, and maybe thought out on their part, I don't know. But to me, they might have been an abstract moral code that didn't really resonate with who I am? Do I take my intellectual self to work? Am I taking somebody else's ideas and knowledge and try to put them to work in my life? It's like those ideas are kind of hovering around in me, but they're not really grounded in me because I haven't really agreed with my inner life. They don't really match up with my own inner personal values. So the outcome of living this divided life, of taking the ego and somebody else's ethics and somebody else's knowledge to work with us, it's not a failure of our wholeness. It's not a failure or a lack of knowledge about the inner self. It's just that at some point we have made a choice, made a decision, consciously or unconsciously, or it's just gotten too easy to try to follow somebody else's path. 
we forget that we have personal gifts and talents to share with the world. Sometimes we stop making the original commitment that we had about how we wanted to show up in the world because we're really living life through someone else's perceptions. And we stop committing to the things that we maybe really believe in that are truly important to us. Maybe we stop speaking about the issues that we have a comment to make about. Maybe our ego is so inflated that we don't even see our dark places anymore, the places where we're weak, the places where we haven't, you know, really sorted things out for ourselves. Our ego doesn't want to see those places, certainly doesn't want to bring them to work and let anybody else see them, but they're there. We have our unique little traits, we have our unique little triggers, and we can, if we bury them, if we think we've pushed them aside, we haven't gotten rid of them, and they will rear themselves, and we will project that energy out. Have you ever worked with somebody you really didn't like? Did you ever have to work with somebody that just irritated you so much that everything they said, everything they did, just the sight of them made you want to just turn around and go the other way? I don't know, I think we all have. But who is that person? They're not our enemy. They're just holding up a mirror that we get to look in and see ourselves. Because whatever we see in them, it's living in us. It's those buried, dark places in ourselves that we haven't accepted that are going to keep showing up in our life. Life in the divided life gets heavier and burdensome. We get more days when we say no. If this were my last day to live, I would not do what I am about to do. And we do it anyway. The true self gets lost. Wholeness, our birthright, is hidden from us. People tell me they feel lost sometimes, invisible in the world. They feel like a fraud because who they're showing up in the world isn't really who they feel like they are. But they've forgotten who they are. There's anxiety about being found out for who we really are instead of who we're showing up as. Words like numb and depressed come up in conversations. I don't know who I am. And how can the imagination be let loose? Imagine, how can we show up authentically and accept someone else for who they are if we haven't accepted who we are and let that person out? So the people around us, when we're living a divided life, pay a heavy price. And these ideas get planted in us at a very, very early age. Just I can see it in my own, in my own life and the things I came to learn and believe that maybe weren't the highest truth. And how quickly in my life, by the time I was 20, really was ignoring what really wanted to come out in me for the sake of money, for the sake of what I thought was freedom and independence, but was it really? May Sarton said, now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. How long can it take to become the person who we are? Well, I don't know. I think it's different for everyone. I know for me it was in my 30s when I started to kind of waken up and say, this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't who I wanted to be. This isn't how I wanted my life to be in all areas. 
How many masks do we put on and wear? How many roles do we play that really aren't our own? How many times did my ego have to be shattered for me to say, okay, okay, I'm going to look at this in a different way. Have I been listening to that outer voice demanding me to be something that I'm really not, to make me different than I am, something beyond my reach because it was never meant to be mine? Have I been taking my soul to work with me? Can I take my soul to work with me? Do I really have a soul? Have I got room in my office for a little more soul? The true self. The true self is the self planted in us in God's own image that wants nothing more or less for us than to be who we were created to be. Thomas Merton said that. To remember who we are, I mean, at this point in life, it takes some reflective time to look back. And as I reflected on my childhood and looking back at that little girl doing chores and babysitting and volunteering and going off to university, there are clues from our past, but they're in code and we have to decipher them a little bit. We have to understand, you see, we have to understand who we are and the material and the stuff that we're made of the gifts and talents that are hidden within us that make us the whole person that we are. You cannot be something you are not. In the same way that an engineer, if they're building a bridge or a building, they have to understand the properties and the characteristics of the material they're working with. You know, they might, you know, the difference between steel and wood is huge. The difference between wood and cement is huge. The difference between straw and sticks and cement is huge. They have to understand when they're building what is the nature of the material that we're working with. And when we're building our lives, we have to understand the nature of who we are. So what did I learn about myself? Reflecting on my past, reflecting on what called to me, what each of these experiences taught me. What did I learn about myself? I learned that I like to listen. I like to listen to other people's stories. I liked to be inspired by them. I liked to come to greater understanding and of the possibility that might exist within me. I like to acknowledge other people. I like to let them know I'm there and that I'm listening, that I'm there for them. I like to be an advocate for them. I like to understand the perspective of another. I don't like jumping to conclusions. I liked healthcare but I think I was more interested in the care. I discovered that there was a leader in me. I discovered that I had ideas, that I could give voice to these ideas in public places. I discovered that I liked being creative. I liked making things. I always had arts and crafts stuff around. I'd always say, Mom, don't throw that out. I think I can make something. <laughs> I like embracing all of me and more than one of anything. Being a parent, being a mother, really brought out that desire in me to create a space for my children where they could discover and learn who they are, what they're capable of, and what they can go out in the world and be and do and who they are. The circumstances of my life took me through some very dark times as well. But it was those dark times that informed me more that 
I am living a divided life and I need to know more about what's on the inside of me. I have to stop relying and giving my power away to someone else. And so I eventually found this center. I eventually took classes. I eventually started to do the work I needed to do to discover who is in me and what is this person capable of and to let go of, of uh, focusing on the outer life for all of my information. Picasso has a wonderful quote. He said, my mother said to me, if you become a soldier, you could become a general. If you become a monk, you could become a pope. And Picasso said, instead, I became a painter and I became Picasso. Isn't that great? <laughs> he found what was in him that wanted to be expressed and he just became who he is. Of course, now we all know who he is. But that was just him doing what he had to do, that thing that he couldn't not do. That's when the true self really comes out. Deciding to live divided no more, deciding that the company I keep at work means I have to understand who I am and whose I am. It means that I take integrity to work. I take the values that are meaningful to me and I live by them. I reveal my wholeness and I accept it, all of it. The, the negative and the positive, the yeses and the noes, the blemishes and the beauty, everything. Everything from my past experiences, the mistakes I've made and the successes I've had, that makes up all of me and I embrace all of it. That is my wholeness. I don't need to reject any of it. My task is to embrace it and bring it all in and integrate it in me so that I can be the best me on the outside. And, uh, and, and being um, at work is being willing to lead from the heart. Being a leader at work doesn't mean you're the boss, it doesn't mean you're the CEO, the manager, or even the supervisor, but we can all be leaders regardless of what rung we sit on on the ladder or what job we do, because we can lead from that place in our heart and lead by being who we are. We're the only ones that can be the leaders of ourselves. To, to make that integration of who we are on the inside and how we show up on the world on the outside. It requires trustworthiness to be able to show up so honest, so raw, so open. Because we don't just reveal ourselves to anybody, do we? We don't tell our secrets to just anybody. We do need a level of trust. We need a, trust, a place, a trustworthy community where we feel accepted and known and belonged so that we can bring our whole self into the workplace to play and uh, wherever we are. Sometimes we need a very tenacious community to support us so that we can reveal ourselves, And we need to be a part of that community to do that for someone else. It requires community and yet it requires solitude on our part to do the work we need to do to discover what is on the inside of me. And that's of course why we teach spiritual practice here. 
We need those others in our lives as well for mutual support and mutual engagement because what I require from others, I want to be available to give to others. An undivided life is joining what needs what ex- needs to be expressed through us with what needs to be in the world. And it's when those two come together that something creative and wonderful can happen. When the light of your true self is revealed and fueled, it acts like a beacon and it brings people together. And then our lights can shine even greater. And I know that sometimes people, people we know, and maybe we experience those places of darkness ourselves. The one thing we can do for them is just keep shining our light. If they don't see it, we can move in closer and just keep shining it and being a presence that remembers that whatever I found in myself, there is something for them to find in themselves as well. Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. I could not have connected the dots of my life when I was younger. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots of your life looking back. But believing that the dots do connect down the road will give us the confidence, the confidence to follow our heart, even when we're not sure what our heart is really saying, even when it seems to be taking us down a path other than the one that looks obvious. They do connect. And it's in believing that the dots connect that requires us to take our souls to work with us, to stay tuned into the, inspira- the intuition that inspires us and guides us, to take the time to observe ourselves, our inner and our outer selves, to live an examined life that integrates and acknowledges both the inner and the outer and the coming together of them without fear. Because fear is just going to be an obstacle. We can let go. It's going to show up, but we don't have to embrace it because our freedom lies in that integration of the inner and the outer. If today were the last day of my human experience, would I do what I'm doing? Absolutely. Namaste. Thank you.